Do you seek the freedom to pursue greater meaning and purpose in your life? Is there something that you're passionate about that you'd like to support by giving time, talent, or money? Do you seek a level of financial freedom to live an ideal life as you uniquely define it? Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to helping you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. Well, hello and welcome to the Money and Meaning Show. Uh, my name is Jeff Bernier. I am your guide and host as we have our monthly conversation around money and meaning. And uh, I'm always fortunate uh, to bring on some really quality guests to talk about the intersection of meaning and purpose and how do we put financial plans in place to give you the freedom and the clarity and the confidence to go pursue your vision of a meaningful life. You know, I heard a motivational speaker um, at some point say, you know, you'll be the same person in five years as you are today, except for the people you meet and the books you read. Well, my guest today meets a lot of really cool people, uh, and he reads a lot. He's, uh, he's, he's very well read. So I'd love to introduce to you, my guest today is Benjamin Felix, who is the head of research at PWL Capital, a Canadian wealth management firm. You may recognize the name of the firm. I had his co-host of his podcast, The Rational Reminder Show, uh, Cameron Passmore, on earlier, uh, probably a year or so ago. But at any rate, um, you know, Ben co-hosts The Rational Reminder uh, podcast. Uh, he also has a very active uh, YouTube channel. Uh, he joined PWL Capital in 2013 uh, after completing a degree in mechanical engineering, an MBA in financial management. He is a CFA charter holder and a CFP professional. And as you'll find in a moment, he is really passionate uh, about the science of investing, uh, as well as a lifelong learner. So thanks for joining me today, Ben. Great to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was really cool. I, I, I told the audience uh, when I had Cameron on that I had uh, met Cameron at the Future Proof Conference almost two years ago. And uh, have just been a follower of you and Cameron and the work that you guys do on the Rational Reminder Show. So, um, so, so, so happy you, you could spare a few moments to to share some thoughts with us. But where I like to start is, you know, about you. Um, can uh, would love for the audience to hear a little bit about your background and and your career path and your family and how you got in, involved in the work that you do. Yeah, sure. Sounds good. So I, as you said, I'm I'm, uh, I'm reiterating a little bit here, but I, I'm a portfolio manager, head of research at PWL Capital, which is a, a firm up in Canada. I did study mechanical engineering on a basketball scholarship, actually, at Northeastern University in uh, in Boston. We've, we've met in person, Jeff. You know that I'm, I'm pretty tall. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, I, I came back to Canada after that, so did the engineering degree in, in Boston, then moved back to Canada. Did uh, started an, an MBA in finance, and that kind of led me into working in financial services. And through that, I, I cold called Dimensional Fund Advisors, just saying, "I found out about you guys. I want to be able to use your your funds." And at that time, they shut me down based on the firm that I was working at. I see. <laughs> but I, I mentioned on the call uh, with with the guy that I spoke with at Dimensional that I liked that they were using the Fama and French three factor model. And I guess it struck the guy as odd that this guy at a mutual fund dealership was asking about the three-factor model or saying that he liked the three-factor model. So that stuck with them. And because it stuck with them, uh, about six months later, Cameron went to Dimensional and said, I'm looking to hire an advisor on my team. Do you know anybody? And uh, my three-factor model comment uh, made them remember me and had them uh, ask if I wanted to be introduced to Cameron. And I, of course, said, said yes. And uh, that was that was about ten years ago now that uh, that I met Cameron and we've been working together ever since. So that's yeah, gotcha. That's my and professional then, story. And of course, since that time, you became a CFA charter holder and continued uh, a deep dive into the academic side of how we do what we do for investors. You know, I, I think it's interesting, uh, like the Dimensional folks, and our audience is well aware of Dimensional. We we have a lot of Dimensional resources on. As I know you do, um, but it's it's kind of interesting at the at the previous firm you were with, you know, I kind of felt the same way 
back at the in my previous firm in terms of financial planning and doing fiduciary financial planning. Mm. And, you know, at some point, you've got to get aligned with places that are aligned with your values or you're or you're just not going to be happy. And of course, I guess your engineering and math background helped you figure out the way you thought we should be investing. And and obviously great to be aligned with a firm for the last 10 years that allows you to pursue that. And I know that you've you really, uh, you guys have really done some neat stuff. So, you know, this show is about money and meaning. What what do you think gives you meaning and purpose in the in the work that you do? You know, you asked me this when we met at Future Proof, and I didn't really have an answer then. I still don't really have. Uh, I still don't really have an answer. I, I have a, I have a family that I that I want to take good care of. Right. I've been married for ten years. I've got four kids, two boys, and uh, wow. two girls. Okay, cool. Uh, so that, that's important to me. Um, yeah. I, I I try to be a, a good steward of my my community. That's uh, that's important to me. But my why, I mean, what motivates me to get up and do things like the podcast that we do, which is a ton of work, and do research for my my job at at PWL. I don't I don't have a great answer to be honest with you. I I have an internal drive to do stuff every day to to accomplish something every day. I've I've kind of always had that. That's that's what allowed me to play basketball at a at a high level. And uh, yeah, that's it. So my yeah. uh, other than a family and, and, you know, all, all the, all the stuff that most people would say is important to them. Um, I just, I just like to do, I like to accomplish something every day. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, I think that's a great answer. Uh, well, it's obvious from the work that you guys put into the rational reminder show and the volumes of things that you read and research, you obviously have a passion for learning and understanding and through your YouTube channel and of course the podcast, you're, you know, I, I know you're you're obviously passionate about teaching. I mean, because you're you, you teach a lot. Um, and so just for the audience, the name of the show is the Rational Reminder Podcast. Uh, and then talk about your YouTube channel quickly. What is the name of the YouTube channel? It's it's right common now, sense it's, investing. It's, it's just, is, yeah, we started calling it at the very beginning. It was called Common Sense Investing. That was the name of the series. But over time, we just, I, I just call it my, it's my name. The channel is called Ben Felix. And okay, uh, so just Google Ben Felix YouTube and yeah. you'll get a lot of content. So how did you get started in, in that world? How did, how did you get started in wanting to share all of this in the public domain? And how did y'all, how did you get started with the podcast? So it's, it's, it's one of the things that I, I was attracted to about PWL when I, when I, uh, when I was working at a mutual fund dealership, I had a blog, I'd started writing a blog, I guess, even back then I was, I was interested in sharing stuff that I was learning. Yeah. So as I was taking my MBA courses and as I was learning things about investments, I was writing blog posts. And that's actually when, when I met Cameron and he looked me up on the internet, one of the things he found is my blog. And that was according to Cameron, one of the things that he liked about me that I had this, this ability to communicate. Uh, ideas through through writing and yeah. that's something that's been part of pwl's dna for a very long time uh we, we've had a couple of, of advisors that that were very successful growing their practices through blogs right. um so very 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 good blogs in in canada very well known and so that to me was was amazing uh, as part of pwl's dna and when i joined the firm i started blogging on the pwl site and then at some point, I guess, I guess it would have been six or seven years ago, PWL had this initiative to support video content. I see. They basically said, anybody that wants to come forward, put their hand up and make video content, we will fund the production. And we even had a, uh, a an external sort of coach that we hired to help on content ideas and, and editing and stuff like that. Right. Um, so I, I, I put my hand up, but I was the last one to do it. We had a bunch of people at PWL that started YouTube channels. I think only one other one is still going today, <clears throat> and it's it's not uh, it's not being posted on super actively. Uh, I was the last one to start, uh, and and mine's still uh, still trucking along now. So it was yeah. really just PWL supporting one of the things that had made the firm successful, which was content, and right. supporting it in the video format. And uh, yeah, that's that's kind of it. Yeah, and then how did that how did that morph into the podcast? Well, we had uh, the, the, the momentum on my YouTube channel started picking up and it was like, okay, this is interesting. People are 
interested in yeah. what we have to say and then yeah. the way that we're saying it and all that kind of stuff. So I remember I walked, I remember distinctly walking to Cameron's office one day, which I used to do a lot, but when we we're, we're fully remote now, uh, we used doing? to be in an office. So I, I used to walk into Cameron's office all the time to chat to him about stuff. Mm. Um, now we talk on teams and zoom, I guess, or, or text. I don't know. Right. I don't know if it's quite the same, but anyway, <laughs> uh, so I walked into his office and I was just like, Hey, why don't we start a podcast? And Cameron was like, all right, let's do it. And so we ordered microphones and we ordered uh, some recording equipment, which we no longer use. We've evolved away from, yeah, right. from what we started with. Yeah. Um, we wrote notes for an episode and sat down and recorded it. And uh, I think we screwed up the first recording, actually. I think we... <laughs> What we 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 There's had the one? wrong yeah. mic channel on or something. So sound. anyway, so we we right. recorded that one. But uh, ever since then, we've we've written notes for episodes every week and, and recorded something every week. And our process yeah. has probably gotten better, but it's still yeah, it all, all started there. Yeah. Well, you 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 have um, you have created an incredible audience and a community, but you also have um, the ability to get some phenomenal guests. I mean, you've had Nobel laureates, you've had well-known authors in our space. You've had some of the top minds in academia talking about our work. And what I'm going to ask you now is probably an unfair question. I know you just did your 23 wrap-up show, I guess, maybe in December or January, but can you give us a couple of takeaways for maybe some guests you had last year that were impactful to you? I mean, if I think back to what are the big things that we've learned, it's really hard to say. Like you said, it is an unfair question. But yeah. I, I think that I can abstract from it a little bit okay. and just think about uh, w w one of the common themes on investments. I'll, I'll start on investments. One of the common themes on investments is that not if, no, nobody agrees. I mean, mm -hmm. we've talked to so many experts uh, in I mean, a lot of them work for competing firms. So that may help to explain some of this. But we've talked to many, many experts in academia and in uh, with practitioners. Nobody really agrees on what the best way to invest is. So I, I think that's really important. However, the one thing that I think there is agreement on, at least in the guests that we've had on, is that as a starting point, owning the market portfolio, using something like low-cost index funds is a pretty good starting point for most people. How to be different from the market, that nobody agrees on that. You talk to five different experts, they'll tell you five different things, but at least people who think in an academic way, if you ask yeah. a, either a practitioner or, or a researcher, an academic researcher, there will be some sense of agreement that owning the market is a pretty good starting point for most investors. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I had the same takeaway when I read, um, you know, Josh Brown and Brian Portnoy's book, how I invest my money, where they interviewed advisors on how they invest their money. And it is all over the board. Yeah. I mean, there's no, and and it's and so while the academic uh, rigor and the research that, that you hope to put behind your work and we hope to put behind ours provides a foundation, even that foundation is not agreed upon. If you talk to most retail, I mean, you've talked to most advisors who serve yeah. the retail public. So, uh, you know, I don't think there's universal acceptance even of some of the academic work that you and I. Uh, are, are, align, are aligned with. But even those that think kind of like we do, I, I, it is interesting how different some of the perspectives are. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah I, I can see that as a theme listening to some of the shows this year because you've had you've had some really you know great, great um, um, academics as well as, um, like I said, um, authors and, and practitioners that you know have their own take on on a, on a foundational belief. Uh, so Bo, you, what, Bo, what you said was important in terms of a starting point, recognizing that markets are, if they're not totally efficient, you should sort of act like they are. Yeah. Um, and that's, and that's, and I guess that's sort of where you guys start in your investment process as, as well, as well as we do. You know, I, I know I'm, this is a little bit of recency bias because, because you had uh, professor Cedarberg on just recently, uh, I think for a second or third time. And I think his two episodes really, struck with me. Do you mind if we talk about some of his research for a moment? Because I thought that yeah, was... Let, 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 let's do that. I, I do want to say, though, the, the other Please. big learning from uh, from Rash Reminder guests uh, and just the work that we've done is that there's so much more. And I know you agree with this. Uh, I mean, just, just based on the introduction you gave and the name of your show, 
there's so much more to financial planning and there's so much more to portfolio management than the stuff that can be quantified. Um, we, we've talked to so many people with expertise in areas of well-being and, and human nature, m- m- motivation, all that kind of stuff. And all of those things are so important to the way that we approach financial markets and the way that we give advice, but it's not going to show up in a you know portfolio optimization or even in a in a technical financial plan. So that's that's one of the other big takeaways. Yeah, I, I thanks for mentioning that because you're you know I don't want to lead the audience to believe that your content, your show is all about just math and about the academic research. It's around how to make your life better, how to right. use this information to make your life better and to have more freedom and clarity and confidence and joy in your life. And you have a you have a lot of guests on that. I know y'all did a whole series on goal setting. I mean, you went really yeah. deep on yeah. goal setting and, and how goal setting can work. And, um, you know, because I think uh, one of the things that you guys communicate is both, as I mentioned, the academic side of the craft of building portfolios, but also how does this help you? How does this make your life better? And and how can you have more? And I mean, we've we've shared a couple of guests. I had Ashley Willens on who wrote a great book called Time Smart. And and she's a professor, as you know, at Harvard and, and and a leading expert on time and what how people measure and value time. And so it's, I, I know it's a much broader than just the math of investing. Um, so, so thanks for, thanks for mentioning that. Um, y- you know, I, th- I think a lot of the behavioral stuff interests me. I mean, I really started in this business and I, I learned early on that it's really all about um, investor behavior has more impact on in results than the markets. Uh, yeah. And that's an odd thing for someone to say who spends a lot of time, you know, studying markets. But uh, but as humans, we crave certainty. And, yeah. and some of this, you know, some of this, when we really get deep into the weeds on the portfolio stuff, that's all good for us as practitioners to have a foundation that we believe in. But it really all gets down to uh, client and and behavior. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. And, and I think I think I'll go with that here in a couple of questions because I want to I want to circle back to it, but can we talk about uh, Professor Cedarberg's two appearances? So, do you? I don't. Do you recall those at all? I mean, I know those were those were pretty big for me, uh, and and some of it may be um, confirmation bias because he says things that you know I, I, I kind of believe in in some respects. But what what do you recall? Tell tell us who Professor Cedarberg is, and and tell us a little bit about what his research findings were. Yeah, so Scott Cedarberg is a he's, he's an academic researcher. He's he's got uh, he's co-authored a ton of incredible papers for retail investors. Okay, and he he explained to me that his interest in that area is ba- basically because he's thinking about his own financial decisions, and he gets a lot of research ideas from from that. So the ones that we're going to talk about are on long-term data and and how that relates to asset allocation. But he's done other really interesting research on uh, one of his papers that sticks out for me, at least in uh, just trying to recall it, is uh, the optimal funding of uh, pre-tax and post-tax savings accounts. So that's I think yeah. like uh, IRAs and uh, Roth IRAs in the in the United States. Right. Um, so he's done lots of really interesting research that's applicable to retail investors. So we had him on once, and we talked about some of that, but we also talked about his work on long-term data, which is what we'll we'll talk about now. So they've him and his co-authors built this data set uh, and a methodology to use the data set. So they basically have a whole bunch of really long-term data for stocks, bonds, and bills, like like uh, cash, basically. Right. And they have it for 38 countries, if I remember correctly, and they have it going back to 1890. Right. And then the methodology that they created, and this is really their unique c- contribution to this type of research, is that they, they use something called block bootstrapping which basically okay. means that they pull a sample of on average 10 years. It, it can be plus or minus. They pull based on a distribution with an average of 10 years. But anyway, so they pull a chunk of returns out of this big historical database. And then that's that's chunk number one of this stimulated potential outcome. And they pull another chunk of on average 10 years and add it to the first one. So they'll do that for stocks, for example. And then they'll create a 30 or longer year period. And they'll see what happened. And then they can do that again and again. They do it literally a million times. They run a million simulations for stocks, bonds, and bills. Just look at what is the range of, based on what has happened throughout history, what is the range of possible outcomes that we could get 
for each of these asset classes. So they had one big paper on that, um, looking at stocks for the long run. That was published in the Journal of Financial Economics. They have another one that I don't think is published yet, where they look at both uh, at stocks, bonds, and bills, and look at the long-term loss probabilities. How, how likely are you to lose money in each of these asset classes? Um, and they also differentiate between international and domestic stocks. So the big findings there, it, to, to grossly summarize it, is that stocks are still risky in the long run, as we should expect them to be, but they are less risky for long-term investors than bonds and cash. Right. And international stocks are even less risky than domestic stocks. So that's their their loss probabilities paper, which which is a phenomenal paper. And then they've got a more recent one, which we the second time we had Scott on, they take that those findings and they apply it to life cycle asset allocation. Gotcha. So they take their data set and they ask, how should an investor's asset allocation vary over their life cycle? Should they follow a rule of thumb? where they decrease their bonds over time? Should they follow a target date fund uh, glide path, the way that those shift toward bonds over time? And they, they look at a bunch of different evaluation criteria, including risk, different ways to think about and measure risk, including utility of consumption, like how much satisfaction do people get out of their, their spending? And the, the finding, again, to grossly summarize it, is that the optimal life cycle asset allocation, meaning it doesn't change over the life cycle, right. is a somewhere around 50% domestic stocks and 50% international stocks. Bonds and cash do not enter their optimal life cycle asset allocation. Hmm. So pr pretty big finding. I think yeah. they call in the title of the paper, it's called uh, challenging the status quo on life cycle asset allocation, which it certainly right. does. Um, yeah. So I, it's not the last word on asset allocation because they, they've made some modeling decisions and, and assumptions that right. aren't predictive of the future. But right. it is a very, very interesting paper and a very right. interesting uh, finding. Yeah, but yeah, both of them were to me. Uh, the first one in particular, in terms of, you know, we just assume stocks for the long run, stocks always win. And as a U.S. investor, it's easy to think that because, you know, we have data going back to, you know, 1926, rough, roughly with Ibbotson data. Um, and yeah, that's true. It always wins. But the United States is one country, you know? Right. And we've and we've been we've been a blessed country. We've had a fortunate uh, century, you know, two hundred years in terms of the capital markets. Uh, so if you study Professor Cedarberg's work, you either say, okay, I'm just going to be really myopic and assume that the U.S. is all that matters, or I'm going to be a little bit more conservative and say this is not the only data that matters. We should look at capital markets all over the world. So to me, and, and even if that stocks had a 13% failure rate, I, failure rate, they earn less than inflation over a 30 year period. Right. In, in some of these examples. So at first, when I read that, I said, man, that's really high. Cause we always assume, you know, stocks for the long run, you'll never lose money in stocks. Yeah. Well, according to his study, you, you would have lost money in stocks over 30 year periods, 13% of the time. But yeah. the punchline is, you know, it's much worse even in, in bonds and bills, you know? Yeah. So while that's bad, it's still better than your outcomes in, in, in cash and bonds. And I think the big takeaway on, on it was, um, you know, the inflation is the problem. You've got to have asset classes that, you know, in, inflation drives the, it drives the results. So that was the, the first paper for me. And again, um, being a believer in the value of being an equity, an owner of the world's great businesses, obviously, it was uh, it it was sort of singing tunes that I that I like to hear, but yeah, but I, I think as an investor we have to say okay, do we just want to use U.S. data and assume that the next hundred years is going to be like the last hundred years because we just happen to be born in in a, in a you know you're in Canada, but as a U.S. investor, which most of mine are obviously, um, and then the second part obviously had to do with the distributions, and even though. I think you mentioned the 50-50 portfolio dominated, 50 U.S. equities, 50% international equities. 50 domestic. So the, the way oh, they treat the domestic yeah. is uh, yeah. it's a representative domestic country. And it's basically the big difference is the currency. So they'll, right. they, they model uh, domestic stocks as they pull a block of a, of a country's returns and they measure it in that country's currency in, right. in real terms. Yeah. And then over the same period, they'll pull the block of international returns. And what international consists of is all of the other countries, excluding the one that we just pulled for 
domestic. So it's basically the market cap excluding the domestic country gotcha. uh, with the foreign currency contribution to the returns. Gotcha. So domestic is not U.S. It's the, the, the country you live in. It's correct. It's a representative domestic all the country. You don't live in. Yeah. And yeah. the benefit there, as you mentioned, was the currency is exactly. a hedge against inflation. Having external exactly. currencies are the hedge. So the so the big takeaway for a for an investor is having an internationally diversified portfolio provides some local inflation protection. If you believe that the U.S. going forward or Canada, in in my case, going forward, will behave like the representative domestic country, yeah, then yes. But if you believe, like you you made the point earlier about. U.S. exceptionalism. If you believe the U.S. is going to continue to be exceptional, which I mean, uh, those those episodes that we've done with Scott and and the other coverage that I've done of his research uh, has has stirred a lot of online discussion, and a lot of the people discussing it basically take the position that well, the U.S. is going to continue to be exceptional. So this research is is bunk. Hmm. Um, that's a that's a, an interesting position to take. I I, I like looking at all of the data and saying, what what would a representative domestic country do, assuming that there's nothing special about, about the U.S. going forward? Right. And it's an, an, interesting, an interesting question because the U.S. continues to be exceptional. But the, the big question investors have to ask is whether that exceptionalism is included, incorporated into current prices. Hmm. Because if it is, well, the U.S. Continue to be, can continue to be exceptional economically, the returns of U.S. stocks will not necessarily continue to be exceptional if the current exceptionalism is already priced in. Right. Yeah, I think what confuses me a little bit on some of the parts of the paper, because I, I tried to get through the paper, um, is um, you, you know when you when you when you try to take into account the home country bias, because he he he, he shows that there is some reason to have home country bias, but. What that level is is you know it's it's hard you know it's hard to I guess hard to understand what the appropriate yeah. home country bias is. But the big takeaway was is a hundred percent equity portfolio dominated right. globally diversified portfolio dominated any other combination, including the default that we're put into in our four hundred one k plans and target date funds. Yeah, definitely. So at least it, it it raises the thinking. But but the challenge of that in his data. And it, it, it's it's common knowledge in the U.S. too, because we've had you know three significant events of fifty percent greater than fifty percent declines. Is in a in an all equity portfolio, you've got to be psychologically prepared for a fifty percent decline or greater. Is that a fair statement? It's absolutely fair, and Scott acknowledges this when we talk about it with him right. on our on our podcast. We we ask him about the behavioral aspect, and he agrees that's going to be the constraint. And he made the comment that I don't remember what is specific words were, but he basically said that in his model, the investor behaves exactly the way he tells it to, the way right. that he simulates yeah. them to behave. Right. But will a real investor actually behave that way? I think that's that's much less obvious. And the, the, one of the important things in that, in the retirement paper and then in the, in the life cycle investing paper was that the outcome for the 50-50 stock portfolio, for the 100% equity, 50% domestic, 50% international, was much more volatile. It had much more, much larger uh, intermediate drawdowns. So during your investment lifetime, you had much bigger um, portfolio declines and much more volatility. Despite all of that, it gives you a much better outcome in it their is. data. Yeah. But you have to live with a much, uh, a much more intimidating portfolio, including in retirement. Including in retirement. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think most investors can can handle that? Well, we know they can't. So <laughs> most most investors, uh, most investors, if you look at in the aggregate data, investors underperform the asset classes that they invest in quite significantly. Like if you just look at broad equities, their investors are on average losing about two percent um, to bad timing decisions, two percent yeah. per year of their returns. So that that's a big drag on performance and presumably would somewhat change the, if, if we chop 2% off the equity premium in Scott's research, I, I would assume it would, to, to some extent, change the uh, change the conclusions. Yeah. That performance drag is even worse for specialized asset classes. Like if you look at sector funds or or uh, even growth growth stocks. They underperform even more relative to... Like, yeah, 3 to 4% that investors are giving up to poor timing decisions. So yeah. we know in aggregate that they, that they can't stick with uh, a, a volatile portfolio. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's just kind of where the academic, you have to bring the academic into the real world with real people that you actually work with uh, and, and and assess that. You know, it's kind of interesting when you did the the recap, 
episode, you know, a few weeks ago, I think the very next episode was the one you had with, with um, Nobel laureate, uh, Robert Merton, Bob Merton, um, who has a whole different take. And this is kind of what you were speaking to about. There's no agreement. Right. He's got a whole different take on how to measure risk. So the so professor Cedarbird was sort of measuring risk on real sustainable incomes. So stocks are safe, bonds are risky in that definition. And of course, Bob Burton's was a little bit different. Is that, is that a fair statement? Well, yeah. So I think one of the big differences is that in a lot of cases, academics, including I think Professor Merton, are are thinking about the long term variance and outcomes. Okay. Whereas Scott's research was largely looking at the loss potential, like could you lose money in real terms? I gotcha. Which is very different from how different. big is the variance and long term outcomes. So there's one definitional difference there, and then I think the other big aspect, and probably this one speaks more to Scott's. Scott's research and how it would differ from um, something like Professor Merton's thinking is that Scott's very intentionally constructed and, and his co-authors have very intentionally constructed this data set that maintains the historical uh, characteristics of returns. So there's a mm. bit of mean reversion in historical stock returns. That's a, an empirical fact. It's there right. in the data. And Scott showed that if you maintain that characteristic, it changes your asset allocation conclusions because he mm -hmm. does show in the paper that if you if you look at independent returns pulling from so independent meaning that there's no relationship from one period to the next yeah, you're not doing the 10 year bootstrap you're doing a one month Monthly. return or one year Correct. return yeah yeah so if you do that and if you just look at us data then bonds come back into the equation and actually do look pretty good right. but if you look at the global data and do the 10 year um average bootstrap pulls that's where the mean reversion kicks in and that's where stocks start to look really good in the in the long run. So that's another big area of disagreement where if we say that we don't actually think that there's going to be mean reversion in stock returns going forward, stocks get a lot riskier. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that that I mean and that's and that's basically the way he set up the the modeling. Yeah. He wanted he wanted to show what 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 conclusions do we draw if we believe that the uh, characteristics of historical stock returns are representative of future stock returns. But gotcha. I mean, because we, we have a, yeah, exactly. Mean reversion being a big part of that. Um, we have a rational minder episode coming out in two weeks. I think it's not, not out yet, but we interviewed three retirement experts, uh, David Blanchett, Wade Fow, and Michael Finca, yeah. uh, all experts on retirement income. And we talked about this paper and one of the comments they made, they had lots of comments, but one of the comments they made is that we don't know the future distribution right. of returns. And we don't know the future return <laughs> right. characteristics. Will there be mean reversion? And another big one, and yeah. there's a, there's another interesting paper on this, is that, that we don't know, we don't know the mean. Like in Scots, they they run a, mi a million simulations. There's a a median outcome. So you can look at like on average basically, what did right. the investor in these million simulations get? We right. don't know what the, you know, in the in the million in the million possible futures that are ahead of us. Right. And we're only going to get one of those, but in the million possible futures, we don't know what the median outcome is. Yeah. We can't know that. Yeah. I, th I think if it's, it's, um, you know, I heard someone in a sports analogy just recently talking about, um, getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. And, and I think as investors, we spend a lot of effort trying to get more certainty by all of these methods. And at some point, we just have to say, okay, these are this is really good research and really helpful, but we just there's so much we can't know. Yeah. So what can we know? You know what 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 can we be confident in? Let's try to rest on those. And these these tangential things, we can either disagree and maybe do a little tilt to here, or a little tilt there, but just recognize we can't we can't know. And to yeah. try to focus on those things we have control over, which is yeah. saving, investing, you know, managing our debt, you know, improving our human capital so we can go trade our time for a paycheck. I mean, those things really, I mean, those really drive the outcomes much yeah. more than some of these tangential things that we just we're making educated guesses about. Yeah, yeah. totally yeah. agree. So this yeah. is super interesting information. And I, I love those studies and I love the episodes that we did with Professor Cedarberg. Um, but should they, should they change people's asset allocation? Should people be going out and selling all of their bonds and being hundred percent equity investors based on that research? I don't think so. I think it, it's a data point. It's something to learn from. It's something to, to take into account when we think about asset allocation. Yeah. 
Yeah. But it's definitely not the sort of be all end all or the or the final word on on asset allocation. Yeah. So how how do you think investors should go about uh, determining their appropriate allocation between between these broad asset classes? <laughs> so I'm I'm laughing because I've I've been working on in my head. I haven't started writing it down yet, but I've been thinking about a, a video for my YouTube channel on the unanswerable questions in <laughs> finance. Okay. Well, I'm- I, I think this is one of them. Uh, the, kind of like what we were just talking about with the with the data modeling decisions. There, there are so many different ways to approach asset allocation. Uh, there are different ways to model it. There are different ways to to simulate it, and a lot of them are going to give you opposing answers. There's even even different theories will give you opposing answers to to what the optimal asset allocation for an individual investor should be. And then even within that, even if if we pick a methodology and say this is the methodology we want to apply to define your optimal asset allocation. Even that can give you material, materially different answers if you change your assumptions. Just like we were just talking about with Professor Cedarberg's research, if you turn off mean reversion, your your optimal asset allocation is different, different than if you turn yeah. it on. Right. So that's that's really hard. I mean, Big. how do you yeah. how do you pick a portfolio based on that? I, I I think you have to have a portfolio that's going to help you achieve your long term goals, which really just means that's gonna that's gonna earn more in investment returns than inflation, so that you don't have to save you know, 80% of your, of your income to, to be able to eventually retire. Right. That that's really investment returns allow us to save less of our income while we're working to consume more of our income while we're working and still be able to fund our, our consumption in the future. So they need to help you do that. Does that mean you should have more stocks or bonds? I think that part's much harder to answer. Uh, but then the other big piece, and this is one of the things that you're just asking, asking about a minute ago is that we have to be able to stick with the portfolio. It has to help us achieve our goals, health being very subjective. It's going to help more or less depending on how much risk we take, uh, of course, with a lot of uncertainty around that. But then we have to be able to stick with it. So if if we can show analytically that it's a it's a 100% stock portfolio that's going to help you achieve your goals the best on average, right. but you can't stick with that, then it's, then it's not very useful. So asset allocation is striking that balance. What's going to help you achieve your goals uh, that you're going to be able to stick with? And how to do that, how to, how to pick that for every individual investor. I mean, the way we do it is we have psychometric risk, risk questionnaires that we use to try and gauge how much volatility people can endure. And then we right. talk about things like this. We talk about the data on stock and bond returns. We model in financial planning software how different asset allocations are going to impact people's expected ability to achieve their goals. Right. And then we talk about the risks of having uh, of having different asset classes in the portfolio. And it's it's very... We, we try and do it as systematically as possible, but it is very, very personal for each client. And we arrive at something that they feel good about, that looks good in their financial planning modeling, uh, and that we both think that they can stick with. And our, our track record of keeping clients invested is very, very good. So I think we're doing something right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I, I like, um, I think y'all, I'm sure you've had Larry Swedrow on and he uses, you know, the your need, ability, and tolerance for risk. And each of those tools do does one part of that. And it's and it's not one size fits all because your capacity to take risk may be more or less than mine, even though our tolerance may be similar. Yeah, you know, definitely. I've got a steady job with good income that's like a bond. Maybe I can take more risk because I have more capacity than someone that doesn't have a steady job. It's got income that goes like this. And so there's there is a a good bit of um intuition and 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 art to this just as well as the science. And this will sound really self-serving, but um, you know, I think that's where an advisor can help. Uh, I agree. No, you, I agree. Yeah, if you've got an advisor that can understand your needs and your unique uh, circumstances, and um, understanding that uh, you know you've got to stay in it, you know, whatever your strategy, you've got to be able to to live with it through through good times and bad. And that's really what you know what what you know the takeaway when I think about the optimal allocations based on the, the, the data. Like I said, it's already irrelevant if you don't stick with it. And, and, and again, not objective about this, but I think the financial plan is also really helpful. Yeah. Uh, because the, the plan there's a big element of, uh, of, of trust in there too, where that's right. when, when the, the client trusts the, what, what you're saying. And I think this, like when you asked earlier about, uh, about all, all equity portfolios and whether clients can actually live with that, that type of volatility, we have a lot of clients who have. I mean, I'm right. I've been doing this for for ten years, so I've really only had COVID to 
to, to live through. Uh, but right. that was a, it was quick, but it was a big decline. Right. And we had, I, I don't know if we had any clients capitulate. We had some tough conversations, but right. nobody, nobody bailed on the, on the portfolio. And a lot of that was because they were able to have a conversation with us. And as you just mentioned, we were able to put the current situation in the context of their financial plan and of the stress testing that we've done and how this is going to affect or could affect their ability to meet their long-term goals. When you have those conversations and reassure people, they can stick with the portfolio. And I know you said it's self-serving and it is of course, and we both have a conflict of interest to say this. However, there is academic research showing that clients who have had longer lasting relationships with an advisor were less likely to capitulate on their portfolio in the 2008, uh, 2009 financial crisis. So it is self-serving and we do have a conflict of interest to say that, but there is academic research supporting it. Yeah. Well, and the other thing too, that you do well, that I think is critical and helpful is the education. Because, yeah. you know, we, we have to think counter-cyclically academic, you know, when you, you know, your, 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 your academic brain says, look, lower prices mean higher expected returns. Yeah. And so you don't want to sell securities that have higher expected returns. But yeah. I mean, that doesn't help someone who is panicking and, 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 and in great fear. You've got to, the trust is about the only thing that, that works, um, you know, in terms of, the, uh, and, and earn trust. It's not, you know, it, it can't be, um, it can't just be a sales pitch. So I, I love one of your lines says um, that either you said or Cameron said or both of you said, and it said the investment problem has largely been solved. And I think this may be alluding to maybe your very first comment about market cap efficiency. But tell me what you meant by that and and um, and how we should how, what, what should we do if it's been solved? Yeah, so I, I, I think it is it, it, the, the, that, that comment basically means that anyone can have a great long-term investment experience by just buying and holding a globally diversified portfolio of low-cost index funds. I think that's, that is the, uh, that is at least a default solution uh, that's going to work pretty well for anybody. There's still lots of tough questions like what asset allocation within index funds, as we've just been talking about, should right. they be hundred percent stock? Should they be on a glide path? Should they be in bonds? Those, those are all still unanswered questions and really hard to answer. But in general, we have the tools available to us to solve investing for most people very, very easily. And we can maybe find some little tax tweaks, optimizations. We can maybe add some value or at least uh, expected, improve the expected outcome a little bit with some trade-offs, which we can talk more about later, uh, by adding tilts towards small cap and value stocks. But generally speaking, a low-cost portfolio of market cap weighted index funds with just no frills. Which you can get. I mean, you know, in, in the states, you can buy one ETF and get right. the global market. In Canada, we're for some reason ahead of uh, ahead of the states on this, but we have fixed allocation um, ETFs where you can buy one ETF and it gives you a globally diversified portfolio of index funds with a home country bias, uh, with a, a target mix of stocks and bonds depending on your mm -hmm. risk tolerance. So that's like you buy one thing and that's You're that's done. it. Yeah. Um, so that 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 is what we mean when we say investing has been solved. You don't need an active manager. You don't need to pick stocks. Uh, you don't need to try and time the market. You can just buy one of these, one of these index funds and it's going to put you in a, uh, in a pretty good position to meet your, your long-term goals. Um, right. now you asked the second question, what, what should we do if that is the case? If investing has been solved, what, what do people like us do? <laughs> Um, I made a video on this a, a few years ago, I think, uh, because I got that question a lot. People were, were always commenting on my YouTube videos saying, like, Ben, we appreciate you doing this, but why do you have a job? <laughs> like what you're making all these videos, which is awesome. And we appreciate, we appreciate you spreading the knowledge, but, um, how is it that you have a job as a portfolio manager? Well, you're saying that portfolio managers don't add value. I, I think it's, it's a matter of adding value in areas other than investment management. And there are a lot of those, there are a lot of opportunities for for, uh, for for people like like us to add value to to clients. So you, you mentioned goals earlier. I think just helping people identify what's important to them and then translating that into financial goals is is huge. And that's not something that's easy to do. There's academic research on that as well, just on people's uh, difficulties in identifying their own objectives. We did uh, we did some research on that last year, and and we're able to show that if you ask people what their objectives are, they're not going to identify what their objectives are. They right. need, they need help. And there are because different you, ways that you can, right. that you can uh, provide that help. 
Um, but then there's the, the behavioral side too, like keep keeping people in their seats through tough markets. I think right. that's that's something that uh, is really hard to do if you don't have a, a person to to talk to. Um, doesn't necessarily have to be your advisor, I guess. I have seen lots of comments on my YouTube videos. I've, I've done a couple when there were market crashes and people have commented that, you know, this video saved me and saved my portfolio. So yeah. maybe it's not necessarily someone that you can call and say, am I personally, individually going to be okay? okay? Just having yeah. someone that you can, that you can trust. Um, right. And I think the other big one is like, you mentioned financial planning a few times, helping people understand their financial picture, what it means to them in their future and, and what planning opportunities are available to them. That's, that's huge. People don't know this stuff. I mean, generally financial literacy is not high. And if you go into financial planning literacy on topics like tax and, and legal and estate planning, it, the literacy is even, even lower. So right. there, there are lots of technical financial planning areas where, where I think that there are a ton of areas that, uh, that advice can be really helpful. So, I mean, just, yeah. you know, insurance tax, retirement income planning, legal and estate planning, um, philanthropic planning. These are all areas where when you're sitting down to tell someone how their money should be invested, all of those areas are relevant. And there right. are many, many opportunities for someone sitting down, having that conversation, even if the conversation is ultimately about asset allocation and about investing, there are so many, uh, so many areas in between, um, in between to add, to add value. So I think, and this is what we do at PWL and I, I believe you do the same, that that's where we have to be adding value because the investing piece is, is solved and, and people can get it for basically free. Right. Yeah. I, I, I agree with everything you just said. I, I think the behavioral aspects of the investing is more valuable than the allocation or, or, or the, 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 the difference between market cap weighting and the tilts that we do, the behavioral yeah. trumps it. Um, and as we mentioned, I mean, there's a big, there's a big price to be paid for bad, not bad behavior, but uh, unfortunate choices in terms of when you buy and when you sell based on emotions and not, uh, you know, logic, I guess. And of course the estate tax and, and so forth. Well, as you know, um, in my firm, similar to yours, I believe, you know, we do use the evidence-based approach and, and use some of the Fama French and the other research around uh, how to improve the portfolios potentially, you know, through some of these methods. So who should be doing that? I mean, we, we, we do it. We tilt to some of these known factors. And I believe you guys do as well. You should we even bother. And, and, and if we should, you know, um, why and how? Yeah. I mean, should we bother? We do it at PWL for, for the vast majority of our clients. We have some that for, for various reasons don't want to use dimensional funds or don't want to have tilts towards small cap value stocks. So that's maybe less than 1% of our, of our overall client base. So we, we do it and I do it personally. Uh, and I've got pretty aggressive tilts toward small cap and value personally. So I believe in it. Our firm believes in it. Who should do it and should everyone do it? I mean, the average investor doesn't do it. We know that. Totalogically, uh, they, they, the average investor just owns the, the market cap weighted portfolio. Uh, so who should tilt towards small cap and value stocks? It, it's a tough question. There, there's some interesting theory on this about who should tilt towards stocks. Uh, basically, people who have less, uh, less risk exposures in their non-portfolio life um, are the ones that should tilt, at least in, in theory. But we also talked to Gerard O'Reilly from Dimensional about this, their CEO and CIO. and it, we're, the, the, this theory is called the intertemporal capital uh, capital asset pricing model, the ICAPM, and yeah. uh, we we had some guests on that talked about it, and it's just this fascinating theoretical concept. But it also suggests that not everybody should be tilting toward small cap and value. And we asked Gerard about that, and he, his comment was kind of like we talked about earlier with optimal asset allocation, trying to do optimization like that based on per, people's non portfolio risk characteristics is going to be like measuring with a micrometer and cutting with an ax. Ah, right. So he basically said you can't really optimize that asset allocation decision, which makes sense because I don't think you can really optimize any asset allocation decision. Um, so who should who should tilt? It's a it's an one of those unanswered questions in finance. Should you have a factor tilt? I think ultimately, and I believe this is what Gerard said to us as well, um, ultimately it's going to come down to your ability to stick with the portfolio because there will right. be tracking error. You've it's lived that, we've lived it's that. It's always too. coming back to that, isn't it? It's for, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, that's the big constraint. If, if, yeah, 
if people could stick with it, and it comes back to the question of what explains the historical factor premiums, is it truly a risk-based premium or is it investors' behavioral mistakes that result in a premium existing? Right. Anyway, um, I, I, I think it's uh, it's hard and it's the underperformance has been it's been real. It's been there. And it's, uh, we've had to have conversations about it and not everyone's been able to stick with it. I mean, there's, there's been stories over the the last few years of, you know, value managers with long histories bailing on their strategy and of robo advisors who'd previously been implementing a, a value tilt, giving up on, on value. So not everyone can stick with it. And I think that right. is a, that is a real constraint. Yeah. Well, and you know, I mean, again, this is, this is a, you know, potentially data mining, but I mean, there is, you know, if you believe in the evidence, I mean, there, there does show some benefits even in retirement to having a mildly tilted portfolio because of the expected returns. And of course, there's a lot of research in the last several years about in the U.S. lower expected returns because prices are not historically cheap relative to the fundamentals. Uh, and we had a, you know, a 30 year tailwind with declining interest rates and a lot of other factors. So, you know, as a fiduciary, you know, I think you and I say, look, we believe that this is a way that can help people potentially improve their odds and we should implement it if we believe in it, but educate clients to make them understand the risk and the trade-offs. And because it's not a free lunch, <laughs> I mean, you, you're getting compensated for, for potentially more risk mm-hmm. um, and, and, uh, and, and see if they're comfortable with it. So it, it can't be one size fits all, I think is, um, is what you you would agree. You know, the last thing I'll ask you, just because it's so topical, is, and I think you did a, a, a sh- uh, uh, either a YouTube um, uh, episode or a, or a show about cash. You, you know, I mean, we've got pretty attractive yields for a change in cash. I know they've come down just recently a bit, but it wasn't a couple of months ago you could get 5% in a CD or a money fund. And so how would you answer investors today that said, look, why should I even bother with all this stuff you guys are talking about when I can get 5% in a guaranteed investment today? What, what's, the, what's the case against that? Yeah, so we, we, we did cover this in the podcast episode. I, I, I did a, an update tweet on this, which we'll talk about in a minute, but that tweet was picked up by the Globe and Mail, which is a, a, a newspaper here in Canada, and, and a journalist did an article on it. And reading the comments on that article, uh, I just want to clarify something for for listeners. We're, we're not talking about whether it makes sense to have some cash in general, right? Because yeah. it, it makes sense to have some cash for for liquidity for various reasons. We're talking yeah. about does it make sense to Long market down. time and switch out of stocks into cash based on yields, cash yields being being where they are. There's some confusion about that when that when that article came out. So it, it is That's an important it. clarification. Yep. We're talking about whether it makes sense to time the market out of stocks and into cash based on on cash yields. Um, but the, the, the simple answer and the, the data on this are are pretty conclusive is that stocks have higher expected returns than cash in all rate environments. That's that's it. So rates are higher, expected stock returns that the risk premium you expect for owning stocks over cash uh, remains roughly unchanged. And so your expected return in, in nominal terms gets that much higher. Your, your risk premium doesn't change. So you expect a higher return that roughly offsets the cash, the cash yield. Um, so there's, there's no real reason to say cash looks relatively attractive if the risk premium is constant. Now, right. is it constant? Does it get a little bit smaller when cash yields are higher, when, when rates are higher? It, maybe, maybe we had one, one guest talk about, um, switching between tips uh, and stocks based on the difference in spread. And he was using uh, Robert Burton's theory to, to justify doing that. It was all very interesting. But even in that case, the expected returns of stocks are still higher than than cash and bonds in uh, in any environment. It's just how much higher and does that matter is the, is the unanswered question, I guess. Right. Uh, but the other piece that I think is important is that cash doesn't hedge you against falling rates. So if expected returns fall and you hold cash, your cash stays the same in value. It's, it's a price doesn't go up, uh, but you now have a lower expected return. If you own bonds or stocks because they have longer duration, they're more sensitive to changes in interest rates. If expected, if, if market expected returns fall, you would expect your stocks and your bonds to increase in, in price, which hedges you against falling expected returns. So I think that's an important piece. 
Yeah. Now, the tweet that I mentioned is just kind of funny and it's super anecdotal, but it is still funny. Um, I tweeted in August of last year, the chart that I mentioned showing that uh, stocks have historically higher returns than cash and all rate environments. And I, I wrote at the top, um, actually what you said in your question, why would anyone invest in stocks with a 5% cash yield? And then I posted this picture and I looked at those numbers again uh, a couple of weeks ago and across all stock equity, um, equity asset classes, the returns from my, the time of my tweet until whenever it was last week or something, uh, had dramatically outperformed cash. Right. So yeah. The, the, the long-term expectation and the historical experience played out over that period. Super anecdotal, but it was, uh, it was kind of fun to see. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's, there's a lot of layers to this. I, I think your caveat and your clarification that, look, we're not talking about money you've got for emergency reserves or savings accounts or short-term portfolios, something you're going to buy in the next 36 months should probably be in cash. Right. We're talking about money you're compounding that you're going to live on for the next 30 years or you're saving for retirement in 10, 20, or 30 years. Um, and, you know, the expectation is that, Stocks will outperform bonds, and bonds will outperform cash, regardless of the of the interest rate environment. Um, and it makes perfect sense uh, because, again, you do have the the reinvestment risk. You know, when rates come down, you're going to reinvest at right. lower rates. And to your point, stocks and bonds react differently to falling rates than they do to rising rates. So you're compensated by it. Well, this has been really cool, Ben. I, I don't know if you've got. Anything else you would like to chat about or share with with my audience? I'd love to hear if you do. Uh, any other any other things that you'd like to like to share? Uh, well, I, I, you, you did have you did have have a, a question that you you uh, sent me ahead of time on yep. on uh, integrating happiness and well being into conversations um, love, when, love when we're talking about portfolios. So I, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, yeah, I think it's a really important question. Okay. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was, I was, your show again, you guys bring on so many great resources, and a lot of it has to do with some of the positive psychology literature. And uh, I'll, I'll probably send out a link to your, to your YouTube show where you talk about some of this. You know, I've worked with, with the, with the folks at Shaping Wealth for the last year or so on some of their work and trying to help advisors do a better job of this. And like I said, you, you guys have had a lot of great, shows on it and some great content about how do we integrate um, some of this research on meaning and purpose and happiness in our investment process or financial planning process. So I was just curious if you had some thoughts about that. So thanks for, thanks for, for going back to that. Yeah. And, and just, just a shout out to Shaping Wealth, Brian Portnoy really transformed my thinking on this stuff. We, we worked with them with Brian before they had even launched Shaping Wealth. We were kind wow. of his, I, I think his sort of pilot, his pilot uh, project to, to see wow. if there was, there, there were legs to this idea. Yeah. So we worked with them for about a year and it completely changed my perspective on the role that a financial advisor should play uh, in, in terms of th this, this aspect of, of, uh, of, of well, advice. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it, it has to be integral to every conversation. Um, I, I think financial planners and portfolio managers have to be at least aware enough and hopefully well-versed, but at least aware enough of the literature on happiness and well-being and, and positive psychology to be in a position to ask the right probing questions to make sure that financial planning strategies or asset allocation decisions that are being put in place are intended to achieve the right objectives for the client. Because I think people can make big mistakes putting strategies in place when they're, they, they've identified, it's tough to say the wrong objectives because you can't say someone's objectives are wrong, but maybe ident uh, identified objectives that are not their true objectives. And we know, right. again, that people are really bad at, at figuring out what their objectives are, um, so that there's, there's a whole literature on that as well. But having tools to help people identify their objectives and and having enough knowledge of positive psychology to maybe nudge people in the right direction, maybe ask the right questions to get them thinking about, do you really want to achieve that? Or, or are you trying to achieve this? I think that that's ha having that integrated into the financial advice process is it's, it's just, it's necessary. I, 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 I you mentioned being a fiduciary earlier, right? 
and, and again, Brian transformed, Brian Portnoy from Shaping Wealth transformed my perspective on this. I don't know how we can give fiduciary advice without having a knowledge base uh, to integrate that, that type of stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, 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 it, I'm excited about the way our industry is moving in that direction more and people like Brian and, 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 uh, you know, Daniel Crosby and some of those guys have really, uh, done a lot of work to help advisors have better conversations because as we talk about, you know, some of the investment stuff is critical, but, you know, handicapping managers is not what we're paid to do. We're, we're paid to help, help our clients live a great life. And the money is a means to that. That's what I, that's what this show is all about. Right. And if we don't have the deeper conversations about, as, as Morgan Housel talks about, you know, knowing what game you're playing, yeah, you, you've really got to figure out what you're, what game you're playing. So um, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, um, that, that you concur on, on the importance of that in our, in our investment and financial planning process. Because again, at the end of the day, it's all about, um, you know, having the means to go do what we're, what we feel called to do and what, what makes us happy. Um, so even the, 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 um, you know, the CFA math guys agrees with me on this. So that's yeah, good. Yeah, I, I guess yeah, I like yeah. to have people on. Yeah. So thank you for bringing that back up. Anything else you have that you'd like to chat about or, or, or are we good for here? Yeah. I, I, up to you. I'm sure we can keep chatting, but, but it uh, depends how, how long you want to keep your episodes. No, this is great. You've been, you've been awesome. I, like I said, I, I might like to see if I could uh, coach you into coming back at some point, but um, let me make sure people know how to find you because again, I want them to know, how to go get your resources. And I know you just started a new podcast. I don't know if it's just for Canadians, but oh yeah. Tell, tell me about yeah. your resources. So the the name of the the normal podcast is called The Rational Reminder. Yep. You can find it at every platform. So iTunes and Spotify and virtually any platform you want. Uh if you if you search the Rational Reminder podcast, you'll find these guys. Uh, what are your other what are the other best places for people to learn more about you and some of your work? Yep. So I'm on YouTube, uh, as you mentioned. So I'm, I'm there. Uh, I, the PWL Capital website has lots of resources. So anytime we do a white paper, um, we, we also post expected return assumptions for different asset classes that we use for financial planning. We post those on our website. So that's just pwlcapital.com. Okay. And then you also mentioned our new podcast. So that's uh, that's been a really fun project. Uh, it's with a, a doctor, a, a physician who's who's still practicing. Uh, but he's scaled back his practice a, a bit to focus on uh, a blog that he created about five years ago about financial planning for Canadian professionals. So hmm. generally targeted at people who have higher incomes in Canada because their financial planning needs tend to be a little bit different. Right. Uh, him and I had gone back and forth on a few really, really technical financial planning concepts where he'd been working on some research and so had I, so we ended up collaborating. Uh, so I knew him through that. He'd been a guest on Rational Reminder as well, actually. And I sent him an email maybe about, about a year ago. Uh, his name's Mark saying, hey, Mark, what do you think about doing a podcast together? And he, he agreed. So we spent a bunch of time building out a curriculum. And it's different from Rational Reminder. Rational Reminder is, is perpetual. It keeps going. We find different topics to talk about. Money Scope, at least for now, is a fixed curriculum where we start with money and meaning and goal setting and, and living a good life. And we progress from there through saving and paying off debt and all that kind of stuff to investing and all the way through to estate planning with a bunch of very, very technical financial planning topics that are more relevant to Canadians in between. So in general, the podcast is for anybody. Some of the episodes will be very Canadian focused, yeah. um, but it's a, it's, it's an interesting project trying to do a, a fixed, a fixed limited run series of a, sort of a curriculum instead of a instead of an ongoing podcast. Well, well, thank you for all that you do. Cause I, I think you're, I think you're serving the broader public knowing that, you know, a lot of these people will never have any access to your firm, but um, back to your, you know, just trying to share information that can be, be valuable. And that's what I've tried to do here today a little bit. So thank you again, Ben, hopefully I'll see you soon at a conference or out and about, but um, again, thank you all for joining for the money and meaning show today. Um, hope that you found this content useful. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can email me at moneyandmeaning at tandemgrowth.com. Please share the podcast uh, to, your, to your friends and uh, go find what makes your heart come alive and create the financial means to do it. Thanks so much for being with us today. 
Thank you for listening to The Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to help you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions for Jeff or comments on the show, feel free to reach out to us at moneyandmeaning at tandemgrowth.com. Or you can find us on the web at www.tandemgrowth.com. Jeff Bernier is the President and Chief Investment Officer at Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. This show is a production of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC. All information discussed is general in nature, is provided for informational purposes only, and should not be construed as specific financial, legal, or tax advice. Listeners should consult an attorney or tax professional regarding their specific legal or tax situation. Listeners should not rely on the content of this podcast as the basis for any investment decisions. A professional advisor should be consulted and or independent due diligence should be conducted before implementing anything discussed in this show. While information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not guarantee its accuracy and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information prepared by any unaffiliated third party, such as guests on the podcast, and takes no responsibility for the same.